Knowledge is the fuel that powers intelligent buying and selling. So get a quick recharge with me, Ron Edwards, Master Sommelier and Director of Wine Education for Winebow, Fine Wine, and Spirits. Welcome back to Wine Smart. Today we're going to talk about something that's definitely on the edge. We're going to talk about Tasmania, which is on the edge of a continent. When you are in Tasmania, you definitely get that sense that you are a long way from everywhere. It's a beautiful place to be. My trip there was amazing. It's a really interesting island. It is the 26th largest island in the world. Uh, it's got the Bass Strait on the north, which is cold water between Tasmania and the mainland of Australia. You've got the Tasman Sea, which is an extension of the Southern Ocean on the east and south, and then moving around into the Southern Indian Ocean, which you could call it the Southern Ocean and be pretty safe. And either way you go, and I actually encourage you to do this, is go to Google Maps, put in Tasmania, put it in the format where you can see topography and just take a look at Tasmania from space. You really get the sense of what I'm talking about, how when you're heading west, you're heading into nothing. And when you're heading east, you're heading into nothing. There's no land between the western coast of Tasmania and South America. It's really sticking out into the brute force of what becomes the Roaring Forties as you head out to sea. That has huge impact on this island as to what you can and cannot do with grapes and where you can and cannot plant them. And so let's let's dig into that a bit, but I just wanted you to get that sense of, wow, Tasmania really is out there on the edge. It does have 42% of its land mass is either in a Australia park where the land is protected or it falls into a World Heritage Site. So Tasmania is always going to be a place where you can go and get close to nature. And I, I love that about the island. I think it's great. The highest mountain peak there is actually notable. It's 1,617 meters, which is 5,305 feet. And that is part of the ridge of mountains that separates the West Coast from the center of Tasmania, which has a lot to do with the climate. And we'll get there in just a couple of minutes. There are no actual official wine regions yet, no GIs, no geographic indicators for Tasmania other than Tasmania itself. And they have some names that they associate with wine areas, but they're not, they're not legal tender, shall we say. The first one, we're gonna go clockwise from the top of Tasmania down to the south. And we're starting with one called Northwest, which is kind of a misnomer because it's actually north central. If you can imagine Tasmania from space, it kind of looks like a giant shark's tooth. And that divot in the center of the top of the tooth where it connects with the jaw is where uh, northwest is, around the city of Devonport. And then as you travel east, the first region you come to is the Tamar Valley. The Tamar Valley also includes the city of Launceston. And then just touching that to the east, you get to the Piper's River area, which is the most well-known grape growing area for Tasmania because of Piper's Brook Winery. Um, and then to the east of that, you have what is called Northeast. Well, this one's actually appropriately named because it's the northeast corner of the island itself. And as you come down the east coast, that strip of land that's heavily maritime all the way down the east coast is called East Coast. Easy to remember, right? We're coming inland now, um, back a little bit north of Port Arthur and to the west, and you run into um, Coal River Valley, which is really now a main hub of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay production, as well as some delightful Riesling. To the west of that is the Derwent Valley on the Derwent River, one of Tasmania's largest rivers. 
And then to the south and west of there is Huan Valley, named after the Huan River. So those are the names that you associate with wine regions of Tasmania, even if they're not allowed to be put on the bottle as a specific geographic indicator. The history of grape growing in Tasmania is fairly long, but not very important until even the 2000s. And you've got to love a story that starts grape growing with Captain Bly and the HMS Bounty. So that intrigued me right away. He actually um, stayed behind what became Bruni Island uh, near what is now Hobart uh, to winter over or to at least allow the weather to become a little more friendly when he got to Tasmania. Because sailing through the Roaring Forties in the winter would be unpleasant at best and deadly at worst. And so he, he spent some time there, several months anchored there. And in 1788, he actually planted vines. Fast forwarding significantly to the 1970s because there was a start and stop kind of situation with vineyards in Tasmania. It's not the most friendly place to grow grapes. But in 1970s, David and Andrew Peary established Piper's Brook Vineyard. And that is now, it's been a famous winery ever since. And it really started to show what is capable in Tasmania. But even all the way to 1986, there were only 47 hectare of vineyards for wine planted and only 154 tons of grapes harvested. Amazing things happened after that. International interest came around and people started looking at this area as a, a hub of potential sparkling wine. And by 2003, we now have 801 hectare. And in today's world, there are 160 licensed wine producers, 230 individual vineyards, 85 cellar door outlets, and uh, 2,084 total hectares planted as of 2022. Those 2,084 hectares are broken into uh, Pinot Noir of 47%, Chardonnay 25%, Sauvignon Blanc 9%, Pinot Gris Grigio 8%, and pulling up the rear is Riesling at 7%. All of these grapes are made into really nice examples, and the preponderance of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay is also reflective of the idea that people looked at this island as a place to do champagne method wines out of champagne grapes. What's also really interesting about this island is how it's difficult to make wine here, and so there is only fine wine. When you look at exports in 2021 and 22, uh, 55% of the wine was from $10 to $15, and 28% was over $20. That's a very high portion in the luxury tier. And it's reflective of, one, the quality of the vineyards, and two, it's, it's not worth it to make inexpensive wine there. I think we should definitely address what makes Tasmania Tasmania in regards to geology and geography because these factors are the major influences as to why we grow certain grapes there and why we plant vineyards in part of the island and not in the other. And so the first major one is the rain shadow effect. The western half of the island averages over 59 inches of rain a year. It's a temperate rainforest. There's some really amazing sights and scenes over there on the west side of the island, but you can't grow grapes in that. All you would have is rot. There's a great blessing in a mountain range, well, several mountain ranges actually, that run north-south between the west coast and the center of Tasmania. And so when you get to the center of Tasmania, you are now on the eastern side of a rain shadow to the point that the rain, depending on where you are in the eastern half, is cut in half to even less than that. Um, Coal River Valley, for instance, gets about 10 inches of rain a year. 
Other places might get as much as 25 or 28 inches. That makes viticulture possible. The next thing that's hugely impactful in Tasmania is wind. This is a very windy island. I mentioned it's sort of right there in the bluster of the roaring 40s, which means there's very rarely still air in Tasmania, and all the wine regions are within reach of the ocean. They all have a maritime effect, which gives them even more wind influence. So depending on where you are, depends on how much wind you're getting. Wind breaks are often essential around vineyards like rows of trees or tucking them up next to a hillside to try and diminish some of the wind. That wind can be very beneficial uh, in that it dries out grapes and keeps things, keeps humidity low, but it can also be a problem. If it's windy during flowering, it can cause uh, problems with fruit set. But in general, the blessing is that it brings cool, refreshing air in off the ocean and makes it so that it never gets very warm. I already mentioned maritime, huge influence there, very important. You have to look through that lens and note that you can feel the ocean in all the vineyards. You might not be able to see the ocean, but you can feel it. You can feel its effect and that is super important on grape growing. Another interesting factor down here is the hole in the ozone. It sits kind of right over top of Tasmania, and that hole in the ozone allows a lot more ultraviolet light to get into uh, Tasmanian vines, and that can be a good thing or a bad thing. UVB tends to sunburn grapes, and so they have to grow their grapes in a way to reduce the amount of UVB that hits their grape clusters, but they can't have so much canopy that it traps a lot of humidity either. So there's a balance going on there at all times. The next factor is where it is on the globe. 42 degrees south latitude is the average. That means long summer daytimes, days in the summertime where you can have 15 plus hours of sunshine in a day and range your temperatures from, you know, in the 50s degrees Fahrenheit up through maybe 80 degrees and then it drops back down. And then the last factor that's big influence here is the very old geology of Tasmania. The vineyards of Tasmania are primarily dolerite, which is a basalt derivative. So volcanic origin becomes basalt, then basalt becomes dolerite through degradation of time. Uh, in the north, it's this very reddish basalt dolerite mix. Um, and then in the south, there are places where the dolerite gives way to beds of sandstone. Uh, in the Coal River Valley, there are pockets of sandstone, and one of those major pockets happens to be where the toll puddle vineyard is. And, but the commonality of both of those soils is they have very little nutrition. And vines are really actually better at living in nutrition-low soils. It makes them work harder at creating good fruit, and discourages them from creating a lot of leaves. So with all those things on the table, what should you expect out of wines from Tasmania? First of all, you should expect really delightful, well-balanced, well-crafted, sparkling wine of both styles, both Couve Close method, you know, Martinotti tank, the faster method, or uh, champagne method. The other options that you can count on from Tasmania are the Pinot Noir and Chardonnay based wines. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, they are dominant in the vineyards because they were thinking about making sparkling wine from them. But what they found in the modern world is that they can make these sleek, elegant, um, European-style acidity and alcohol with 
a fruit base that, that is very new world. And in some cases, I find the wines hard to tell apart from European counterparts from Burgundy. Very elegant styled wines. And obviously there's a range. Not all the wines are created the same. Uh, for instance, the Tollpuddle Pinot Noirs are super elegant. And the Dalrymple wines are a little bigger, a little bolder, a little more color and texture. You will find delicious Pinot Gris Grigio, both in off-dry styles as well as dry styles. And the Riesling that's grown on the island is um, not a dominant character, but the ones I tasted while I was there were really good. Uh, and both styles are made dry, kind of what you think of with Australian Riesling styles, and also the more Spätlese Cabinet style that we think of from Germany. Go out and explore Tasmania. Um, there's three producers in the show notes that you should definitely check out. Uh, Jans for sparkling wine, Toll Puddle, and Dalrymple for uh, Burgundian varietals that are just fabulous. Until next time. Mm-hmm.